Last month, we looked at the clarity that the scripture has about Israel being at the center of everything that happens on earth during the last days. And we spent time studying the similarities between what's happening now in the world and what the word describes will happen at the end. And as we process through the Revelation chronology, I repeatedly affirm the premillennial view of when Christ will return. After that session, my wife Dana said that she had never heard me announce that I believed in the pre-trib view before. I told her that I didn't say that. But what I said was that I believe in the premillennial view that it flows directly out of the Revelation chronology of the last days. And in that interaction, I realized that others might also be confused with the millennial views and the rapture views. So tonight I want to clear up any confusion about the difference between the millennial and rapture views. For a deep dive on these issues, I refer you to Thursology number five for the teaching about the millennium and to an entire mini-series that I did on the rapture in number 78 through 94. But tonight, I'm going to attempt to use scripture to do an overview of the entire end times chronology to help clear up what might be unclear, and so it'll be packaged in a single session. The anchor for understanding the last days is to first focus on what the scripture teaches about the seven-year tribulation. And the way that this has become easy for me is by seeing the tribulation in a verse, in a chapter, and in a book of the Bible. In Daniel 9, 70 groups of seven years are described for Israel. And the first 69 sevens, as the word is in, in the uh, Babylonian Aramaic, not Hebrew there, uh, sevens, um, those were fulfilled when Israel declared Jesus to be the Messiah on Palm Sunday. But there's one group of seven years left for Israel, the 70th week, that's really not properly transport, uh, tra uh, tra uh, translated, but it is um, so ubiquitous in so many translations that I'll, I'll use that interchangeably with seven or seven groups of seven years. Uh, and the prophet's description of what will happen during this time, the 70th seven or 70th week, provides a perfect outline for the seven-year tribulation. It's a grid of the last seven years of history given in a single verse. So look with me. It's in your notes there. The last verse of chapter 9 of Daniel, and he will make a firm covenant. We've already dealt with the 69 sevens. He will make a firm covenant with the many for one seven, but in the middle of the seven, he will put a stop to the sacrifice and grain offering. Here we see the temple. And on the wing of abomination will come the one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction of the one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So here's how it will unfold. Look at what comes out of this. Talk about a pregnant <laughs> verse with information. Look at this. Number one, here's your blanks. The covenant. The Prince of Peace is the Antichrist who will establish a peace treaty between the renewed Roman Empire and Israel. We talked about last month, we talked about how we can see the things in the world now happening that could end up with Israel basically feeling the entire rest of the world is ready to take them on and take them out, and why they might be willing to sign that seven-year peace treaty. Number two, here's your blank, 
the covenant will allow the Jews to begin to sacrifice in the temple again. Pretty remarkable. Number three, the peace treaty will be broken in the middle of the seven years. Right out of the verse again. Number four, Daniel calls the midpoint of the seven years the abomination of desolation. And we'll see Jesus teach on this directly uh, in the Olivet Discourse. And number five, at the end of the seven years, the evil prince, that is what we know as the Antichrist, will be destroyed. So seven-year covenant, midway abomination of desolation, where the peace treaty is broken, and at the end of seven years, the Antichrist, the one who made the covenant, is destroyed. Um, so this is a perfect outline of the seven-year tribulation that precedes the second coming of Christ. And you can look at your first handout tonight, and you can see. This is Daniel 70th 7, in a verse, begins with the covenant, three and a half years. In the middle, the covenant's broken. And then at the end, you have the prince, the Antichrist, who is destroyed at the end of the seven years. And... So, single verse. Now let's look at the tribulation in a chapter. And again, really flashing through this tonight because, uh, because I want to do this in a single session. But look at verse 9 in chapter 24 of, uh, of Matthew, the Olivet Discourse. Then they will deliver you to tribulation, and they will kill you, and you will be hated by all the nations on account of my name. So here's your blank. The start, the tribulation begins in Jesus unpacking his great sermon about his return. Okay, now look at what happens in the, the middle, right, right in your blanks here, and then we'll do the text. According to Jesus, the abomination of desolation begins the great tribulation. Look with me at verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which is spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Okay, and then look at down at verse 21. For then there will be a great tribulation such has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall. So next, we've done beginning, middle, next, uh, the blanks here. At the end of the seven-year tribulation, Christ returns. So pick up with me in verse 29. But immediately after the tribulation, notice that, very unequivocal. Start with the tribulation, make it to the midpoint. But after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Verse 31, and he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to another. And we'll come back to that, to the other. We'll, we'll come back to that. So notice, we saw Jesus uses Daniel 9.27 as his text to preach from the Old Testament his Olivet Discourse about his return. And he says, it's tribulation before that. Remember, there's, there's been, they said, what, is the, what will be the sign of your coming end of the end of the age? And he says, there'll be wars and rumors of wars and so forth. Really, what's happened in, 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 the, in the ages before uh, now. And then tribulation begins at the midpoint, the abomination of desolation. He says, if you're in Judea, in other words, if you're Jewish and you're in Israel, flee to the mountains. 
And then um, at the, the second coming of Christ comes and he, he wins the battle of Armageddon and saves, saves Israel. Um, so now let's see the tribulation in a book. And you're going to see we can flash this and there's remarkable resonance between these. In this section, I'll give a, just the highest level overview of the timeline of the last days as it unfolds if you just go through uh, uh, methodically through the book of Revelation. If you want this in detail, Thursology 3 through 5 teaches on, on the whole thing. So look from chapter 6. Here's, the, here's your blank. The tribulation begins with the false peace treaty and the seven seal judgments. So look what happens in the text here, the beginning of chapter 6. Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a loud voice of thunder, Come! I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. And uh, if you've heard the, this teaching before, you realize he has a bow but no arrow. It's a perfect picture of the fake peace treaty. He's really come to conquer the Jews and the world, but you can't tell that at first. It's not till the midpoint when his real intent, and he becomes clearly uh, declared as the, the uh, Antichrist. So now, uh, during the first three and a half years of the tribulation, the seven seal and seven tr trumpet judgments unfold, and then comes the events of the midpoint. Write this in. Here's your blanks. At the end of the, uh, at the midpoint, excuse me, of the tribulation, the Antichrist is revealed. This is actually a short list, but look at the things that happen. The Antichrist is revealed. He breaks the treaty, declares himself God. That, by the way, is the abomination of desolation. He goes in, desecrates the temple, sets himself up as God, says they can't sacrifice to their God anymore. And then finally, and the great tribulation begins. Again, using Jesus' verbiage, the tribulation for the seven years, but after the abomination of desolation, the second half is the great tribulation. And so notice, and here we know the dragon is interpreted by Revelation to be Satan. And the dragon gave him, the Antichrist, his power and his throne and great authority. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast, Antichrist. And they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? And authority to act for 42 months was given to him. Notice there the three and a half years. And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as who do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And he causes all, the small and the great, the rich and the poor, the free men and the slaves, to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. So this is the midpoint where all of the incredible, literally, hell on earth begins and occurs. And then, as we come to the end, in Revelation chapter 19, here's your blanks. The tribulation ends with the second coming of Christ when he comes in power to save Israel and destroy the Antichrist and his armies at the Battle of Armageddon. Look at these ex excerpts from uh, chapter 19 at the second coming. And I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. This is the real white horse. <laughs> and he who sat on it called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. 
From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him, who sat on the horse against his army. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. So notice what has happened as you just march through Revelation with the understanding and background of Daniel and Jesus preaching about the seven years, and now Revelation. You get the peace treaty at the beginning of 6, a false peace treaty, a firm covenant in quotes, as Daniel said, and then you get the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and then you get the abomination of desolation, Satan Again, desecrating the temple, setting himself up as God. And after that, if you don't worship him as God, you die if they can find you. You have to take the mark and worship him. Um, And then finally, at the end, the Antichrist, Christ comes in chapter 19 and destroys Antichrist and saves the nation of Israel and the world from Armageddon. So notice how easily Daniel 9.27, Matthew 24, and Revelation 6-19 through 19 tracks. Now we're ready to move to chapter 20. But before we do, I want to point out that there are a boatload of scholars who completely mangle this chapter. It's as if they come to chapter 20 and they go insane. They go through all kinds of hermeneutical calisthenics to explain why this chapter doesn't mean what it says and doesn't say what it means. It's remarkable to me that the millennium is one of the most controversial topics in church history. The reason this is surprising is because Revelation chapter 20 is given in plain, understandable language. So in Revelation 19, we've seen Jesus return, win the battle of Armageddon, and defeat the Antichrist. And now in chapter 20, we come to the beginning of the millennium. It's, that's where it is. It just flows right into it. And so let's look briefly at the three classical teachings about the millennium, the thousand years. Here's, a, here's your blanks. Notice first premillennialism. There's your blank, premillennialism. And notice what happens here. The world is on the brink of annihilation and Israel on the brink of annihilation. And the second coming happens at the end of the seven years. And then you enter into the millennium. We're going to come back and see how this matches with the text in chapter 20. So right in millennium there. And Christ reigns for a thousand years on earth. We'll hear that over and over again in chapter 20. Then comes the final judgment, the sheep and goats judgment, and uh, then eternity begins. Okay, the second most commonly believed millennial view is, here's your blank, post-millennialism. Notice, in premillennialism, the second coming of Christ happens before the thousand years. Chapter 19 is the second coming. Chapter 20 is the millennium in Revelation chapter, uh, in uh, the book of Revelation. So notice here, postmillennialism has used an ideology of uh, progressivism. And I don't, I'm not using that loaded in any way, either philosophically uh, or politically at all. I just simply mean that the way they read is that the church is going to evangelize the world 
and that the gospel is going to be so successful that the millennium will be a Christianized world. So notice here, your next blank is it shows the millennium, but during that time, the church has been had nearly unlimited success with the gospel and the world is doing great. And so that the second coming and the final judgment occur at the end of the millennium where Jesus receives this kingdom that the church has made uh, by being so successful with the gospel. And then eternity begins. So um, before I move on, let me just make sure you understand. Premillennialism believes the second coming of Christ happens before the thousand years. Postmillennialism believes that the church reigns, if you will, over the world for the thousand years, and then the second coming happens where the church offers up this nearly perfected world to Jesus the King. And then finally, here's your last blank, amillennialism, just an A there and a privative. Um, and notice the church evangelizes the world, parentheses there, no millennium. They don't believe in a thousand years at all, think it's completely, uh, absolutely metaphorical. Uh, and so there's only a single event in all of eschatology for the amillennialist. At some point, the second coming and the final judgment happens, boom, uh, and then eternity begins. So now that we've gone through the major, three major millennial views, let's compare them to the way that Revelation 20 unfolds. And let's identify which view matches the text most closely. As we'll see, two of these views simply ignore the way that Revelation unfolds. Remember what happened, just happened in chapter 19. The Antichrist gathered the world for war, but Christ returned and saves the world from annihilation. Now look at chapter 20. Ready from verses 1 and 2. Write it in. An angel binds Satan for 1,000 years. Look at the text. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the keys of the abyss and a great chain in his hand, and he took hold of the dragon. Now remember, the Antichrist and the false prophet, those two are humans. They've already been thrown into the lake of fire, which we just heard in chapter 19. This is now Satan. This is not a human. This is Lucifer, the second most powerful entity in all of the universe. Ready? And so, and he took, this angel took a hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. It's exactly what the text says. Now look from verse 4 and write in your blanks. The tribulation saints who were beheaded for not taking the mark are resurrected and they reign with Christ for 1,000 years. Look at the text. Then I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their foreheads and on their hands. And they came to life. This is the resurrection of those who were beheaded for not taking the mark, right? And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. It's exactly what the text says. Now look at verse 5, right in your blank here. The unbelieving dead remain in the grave for 1,000 years. So the resurrection of those who died, this is different than the church. These are those who died for not taking the mark during the 
during the tribulation, if the, for right now we're ignoring the pre, mid, and post uh, rapture view, we're going to come and overlay that in just a few minutes. But notice, the unbelieving dead remain in the grave for a thousand years. Look at this, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. Notice the pattern of Revelation chapter 20. Now look going on in verse 5. The first, here's your blank, the first resurrection occurs at the beginning of the millennium, and Christ will reign on the earth for 1,000 years. This is the first resurrection. Look at the text. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And then finally, from chapter 20, in fact, I only think I did five or six of these, not all of them. Chapter 20, look at verse 7. At the, uh, here's the blank. At the end of the thousand years, Satan is released to deceive the nations. Look at the text. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison, right? Placed in the abyss by the angel, now released, and will come out to deceive the nations who have been living during the thousand years, the millennium. So we won't take time to read him, but in verses 9 through 13, fire destroys Satan's armies. Satan is thrown into the lake of fire. Remember the Antichrist and the false prophet are already there. Now Satan joins them for his eternal punishment and the judgment of all of the unbelievers from all of history occurs at the great white throne judgment. And then in Revelation 21, we see the new heaven and the new earth and the uh, new Jerusalem as eternity begins. By the way, I want to I correct what I just said. Now, we see the sheep and goats at the end. The great white throne occurs right after the second coming um, and before the, uh, before the millennium ends, uh, begins. Okay, so um, look at this. And now let me put this up and look at your second graph because now we'll start overlaying multiple things. What we've seen is we already built the tribulation, the seven years, in a verse of chapter in a book. Okay? And then we went from chapter 19 into chapter 20. We just let it unfold. And we saw that the thousand years has a bunch of stuff happen in it. And then at the end, we see the final judgment. We see the universe destroyed by fire and eternity begins. This is very different than the second coming of Christ that happens when the world has come against Israel at Armageddon, okay? The world will come against Israel here, but it will be the deceived nations at the end, still amazingly coming to try to kill Christ, who will be reigning on David's throne in Jerusalem. Here's where Jesus sets up his throne in Jerusalem for his 1,000-year reign with the saints. Okay, so... Um, let me make sure I haven't passed anything. So now that we've gone through Revelation, look back up at the three classic millennial views, the pre, post, and uh, millennial. Okay, Look back up in your notes at that. Which one of those best fits the way that you just unfold the book of Revelation? It's really, really clear. It's the pre-millennial view. Pre-millennial, because Jesus comes back in chapter 19 and then establishes his kingdom and reigns for a thousand years. Pre-millennial return 
of Christ. So in this section now on the rapture, I want to give a very high-level overview. If you'd like a lot more detail, 78 through 94, yep, there was like 17 of them or something like that on the various strengths and weaknesses of the rapture view, uh, views. Um, but just to make sure that no one believes that the concept of the rapture, of being caught up to meet Christ in the air, was made up by eschatologists, which has been, uh, that's a statement that's said forthrightly by some uh, theologians. But look at First Thessalonians chapter 4 with me. And for the moment, ignore when this happens in eschatology. Just notice the confidence with which Paul says, the rapturo in Latin, which simply means to be caught up in the Greek. Um, so there, thus the uh, rendering in English of rapture. Um, notice, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So this is the church with those who have died in Christ, the church age, and this is those who are alive, Paul fully expecting Jesus to return in his lifetime before he died. Notice, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the, now notice this, the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up. That thus rapturo in the Latin Vulgate is, is, is thus rapture. So when somebody says, I don't believe in the rapture because the, the rapture doesn't appear in the English Bible, it, it's simply a misunderstanding that they don't real, realize that rapturo in Latin simply means caught up. It's exactly the same word uh, as uh, in the Greek. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And now let's look at the biblical pictures that are given in support of the three classic rapture views. Remember, we've looked at the three classic millennial views, the amillennialists, which I'll set aside for now because they completely ignore the seven times that uh, the thousand-year reign of Christ is, is articulated in Revelation and in many of the other prophetic books. Um, notice the amillennialists, but the premillennialists and the postmillennialists, that is very different than when Christ catches his church up, and that's what we'll deal with now, the rapture timing. So got it? We've got the millennial timing about when the second coming of Christ in Armageddon occurs, at the beginning versus the end, and I believe that in Revelation does teach the chronology of premillennialism. But now let's look at the rapture timing issues. Here's your first blanks there by Revelation 4. The Revelation picture of the pre-tribulational rapture, or pre-trib, as a lot of people use the, the abbreviation. The Revelation picture of the pre-tribulational rapture. Look at this, remembering what we just read from 1 Thessalonians 4. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like the sound of a trumpet. So notice a voice and a trumpet speaking with me and said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. So look what this passage of the beginning of chapter 4, describes a loud voice, a trumpet. John is 
a member of the church, caught up into heaven, and he is in heaven with the Lord, seeing the throne. And the pre-tribulational proponents, which believe that before the seven-year tribulation begins, thus pre-tribulational, forget the millennium for now, we're talking about the tribulation and the rapture of the church now, pre-tribulational, and that makes perfect sense to them because when does the peace treaty get signed and the beginning of the seven-year tribulation happen? In chapter 6, when the firm covenant uh, occurs and the seven years begin. So this is two chapters before that. And notice this, according to, here's your blanks, according to the pre-trib view, this describes the rapture at the end of the church age. Remember, there's the church is mentioned over and over and over again in chapters 2 and 3. And interestingly enough, once you come to chapter 4, and what the pre-trib would say, the church has been caught up to be with Christ in heaven, the word church never exists again uh, in Revelation. Very interesting. Notice, this describes the rapture at the end of the church, there's your blank, church age, and before the tribulation begins in chapter 6. So again, I want to make sure we now are talking about the rapture, not the millennium, and the rapture is about whether it happens before the tribulation, pre-trib, or as we'll see, mid-trib, trib and post-trib, thus trying to keep to get the... Uh, confusion gone from the rapture views and the millennial views. So, look what happens in Revelation chapter 11. Here's your blanks. The Revelation picture of the mid-tribulational rapture, or mid-trib rapture. I'm covering the three, by far and away, most commonly believed rapture views uh, through church history. So look what happens in Revelation 11. Here we are at the middle of the tribulation. Leave out the court, which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations. And they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. So notice, for the first three and a half years, for the first 42 months they were protected by the Antichrist, who came as a false peacemaker. But now, the Gentile nations and Antichrist as their head, uh, tread underfoot the holy city, Jerusalem, for 42 months. Notice the text, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses, they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. So what has happened is for the first three and a half years, these witnesses are faithfully preaching the word. Then when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. So at the midpoint, these two witnesses, a lot of people think Elijah and Moses, nobody knows for sure, but... Um, but after the three and a half days, look at this, the breath of life from God came into them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell on those who were watching them and they heard a loud voice from heaven, notice, saying, come up here. Very interesting. Then they went up into heaven in the cloud. So notice, according to its advocates, this is the revelation picture of the mid-trib rapture. Right? We already saw the pre-trib rapture that happens in chapter 4 before chapter 6. We're now in chapter 11, which is at the midpoint of the tribulation. And notice the witnesses who aren't a member of the church, um, uh, likely. But uh, there's a beautiful picture of their death, their resurrection, and their being caught up, hearing a voice and being caught up into heaven. Thus, the mid-tribbers would say, that's the chapter 11 is the mid-trib revelation rapture picture. 
So, look from this in Matthew, because here's where you see the picture of the post-tribulational rapture. And as we look at this, uh, I want to make the point that the pre and the po- uh, excuse me, the pre and the mid-trib folks, they say, well, there's no picture in Revelation at the second coming of Christ of a rapture that's plausible like these two previous ones. And um, they say that accurately, but you simply have to do, all you have to do is match it with Matthew 24. And when Jesus preaches, look what happens at the second coming. Look at this from Matthew chapter 24. Look at the text. But immediately after the tribulation, so think about where we are in Matthew chapter 24. We had the tribulation. We had the abomination of desolation and the great tribulation. And now Jesus is coming at the end of the tribulation. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the coming, the Son of Man coming on the clouds with, of the sky with power and great glory. So this is the, the glorious appearing of Jesus. This is the second coming of Christ. This is the coming to win the battle of Armageddon. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet. Notice this. Send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. So in fact, even though there isn't a picture of the rapture in Revelation chapter 19, simultaneous with Jesus' return, there is a great picture simultaneously of what could easily be a description of the rapture here, where there's a trumpet and the angels gather the elect from the four corners of the earth simultaneous with the second coming. So let me now go back through this with us. We started by dealing with the seven-year tribulation in a verse, a chapter, and a book. And then we looked after chapter 19, where the second coming of Christ and Armageddon are, at the thousand-year reign of Christ. And at the end, we see the millennium ends and there is the final judgment. But Christ has come all the way back here in chapter 19. We also then went and unpacked and looked at the pre-trib rapture picture in chapter 4 of Revelation, before chapter 6 when the trib begins. The mid-trib picture of the witnesses being resurrected and caught up into heaven. And then we went to the Matthew 24 parallel passage where Jesus tells about his glorious appearing, the big one to win Armageddon, and says at that time he gathers his elect from the four corners of the earth. And so you can see why it took me so many weeks, uh, months really, to unpack the the different views and their strengths and weaknesses uh, of those three views. So now I want to give you a future mental check to help make this easier. When you're thinking about the timing of the last days, the millennial views are not about the rapture. Notice the millennial views are about when Christ will return to save Israel from the Antichrist at at Armageddon. And clearly I have established that Revelation unfolds. You have to mix up Revelation in order to not believe that the second coming comes before the thousand years. So we did that. We worked through the millennial issues. 
And notice the rapture views are not about the millennium. See, the rapture is about when Christ appears in the air, raises the dead in Christ, and changes the living saints into their resurrection bodies and takes us to heaven. So this is really important. Notice, the rapture views have to do with whether they're or mid-tribulational or post-tribulational, simultaneous with Jesus coming at his glorious appearing second coming to win the battle of Armageddon. That's completely different than pre-millennial, Jesus comes before the thousand years, or post-millennial, before the thousand years. And so here's the mental check. You ready? Here's the mental check, write it in, about the millennium versus the rapture. When someone, here's your blanks, when someone is talking about pre-something or post-something, make sure you listen carefully to whether the something is millennial, here's your blanks, millennial, or tribulational. Because notice with me, everyone who believes in the rapture is pre-millennial. Because everyone believes that Jesus is coming from the church, every one of the pre-trib, mid-trib, and post-trib. So if you believe in the rapture, you know that's coming either before or at the simultaneous with Jesus' second coming. So you can see everyone who is pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib is pre-millennial because only the post-millennialists believe that Jesus comes here at the end and does everything basically all at once. So thus the rapture views and the millennial views hopefully are unpacked in a way that you can track with. And this is so content heavy tonight, you may want to come back and watch it again. So as we move on to our applications, I want to deal with some questions about the millennium. Uh, I've heard these over and over throughout the years. I dealt with some of this several years ago, but I think tonight's review puts us in a good position to understand the mysterious millennium, the thousand years that don't make sense, if you will, to some theologians and to a lot of people. And as we begin the applications, I want to establish two key concepts. Ready? Here's your blank. Key concept number one, the clear, simple, explicit phrase, thousand years, there's your blank, is used seven times in Revelation chapter 20. Think about that. Not only is the millennium not an afterthought, it's given the perfect number of times in this chapter. Seven times. What an announcement about the actual reality of the 1,000-year reign of Christ in Jerusalem on David's throne on this earth before it melts with a fervent heat at the end of the millennium and the new heaven and the new earth come in. And then key concept number two, ready, here's your blanks, the premillennial view, right, that Jesus comes to win the battle of Armageddon happens before the thousand years. The premillennial view flows directly out of the Revelation chronology and depends on no alteration of the text or theological manipulation for its support. Look what you just wrote in. The premillennial view that Jesus comes before the thousand-year reign, the premillennial view flows directly out of Revelation chronology and depends upon no alteration of the text or theological manipulation for its support. Notice, if you're a post-millennialist, 
you have to ask the question of why did, G, did Jesus, when he spoke the revelation to John, why didn't he switch chapter 19 and chapter 20? Why didn't he have the millennium come first and then his second coming happen? Because that's what they believe. Well, there's a big problem. That's not how revelation unfolds. It ref- unfolds as you have the seven years of tribulation, and then Jesus returns and wins the battle of Armageddon and kills the Antichrist, and then he sets up a kingdom for a thousand years, and it says it seven times that he reigns for a thousand years. Okay, so really important there. Oh, and then there has to be theological manipulation if you want to be amillennial, because what you have to say is, in Revelation chapter 20, it's all allegory. It's all metaphor. Um, it, it doesn't mean what it says, and it doesn't say what it means. And I've told you all the way through that I would always try to use what I like to call the normal, forget the argument about literal, because there's about 18 different kinds of literal interpretation of Scripture. The normal use of Scripture, the normal method of interpretation, which means it means what it says, and it says what it means. And when it says a thousand-year reign of Christ seven times, it means that Christ will reign for a thousand years. So that's why I, frankly, don't even pay attention to the amillennial view at all. This is why I teach the premillennial view. It flows naturally. Now, as to what Dana misheard last month, when I said I am teaching the premillennial view, and I believe it, she heard pre-tribulational view. So remember, just to clear this up, when, some, when you hear pre-something or post-something, make sure you hear the word that comes after it. If it's pre-millennial, that just means you believe Christ comes before the thousand years and reigns for a thousand years on the earth. If it's pre-tribulational, then you believe the rapture of the church happens pre-tribulation, before the seven years. If you are a post tribulational rapture person, you believe that the rapture of the church, the church lives through the seven years of tribulation, and many of us would die for not taking the mark of the beast, but those who survive will be raptured simultaneous with Jesus coming and killing Antichrist and winning the battle of Armageddon. But notice, pre, mid, or post-trib believers are all pre-millennial, because Jesus wins Armageddon and takes out Antichrist before the thousand years. So, application number one. Whoa, that was a lot of stuff. Ready? Here's your blank. I've said this before, but, but I, I really want to uh, dive into it a little bit this evening. Revelation isn't hard to understand. It's hard to believe. Revelation isn't hard to understand, it's hard to believe. And, and again, I said, intermittently I've said that, um, but think about what Revelation says about the last days. Satan will be bound with chains, Jesus will reign as, the king, in, as king in the city of Jerusalem for a thousand years on this earth, in this Israel where a big war is going on right now. Beheaded people will be raised from the dead, The armies of the entire world will march on Israel. Worldwide earthquakes will ravage the globe. The earth will be destroyed by fire. A brand new earth, just like Eden, will be created by God for us to live in. So for many people, this simply sounds just too much like Hollywood. 
And even many believers consider Revelation as a, just a mysterious, symbolic, bizarre allegory. I mean, what in the world can you possibly get out of there? But take a step back and think about what we read through tonight. You ready? The words for Revelation, write it in. Here's your blank. They're in plain English that, of course, comes translated from the Greek. But plain English telling a clear story that usually interprets itself like the dragon being Satan in words that are relatively easy to comprehend. That's the book of Revelation. When it says there's 100-pound hailstones, that's not hard to understand. It's hard to believe. When, it's, when you hear a global earthquake, which the geologists say is impossible, that's not hard to understand that it says that the whole world will experience an earthquake. That's hard to believe. So look at it again, but, the, but don't say the revelation is ununderstand, not understandable. The words for revelation, look what you wrote in. Plain English, telling a clear story that usually interprets itself in words that are relatively easy to comprehend. You see, the reality is our biggest problem with revelation is that it's so hard to believe. The other thing is, Why? Why will that happen? Why a thousand years? In addition, there are a lot of people who don't want God to be sovereign and in charge and coming with power and sitting as judge over all the earth. Many amillennialists are that way. They don't want God to be that kind of God who judges at the end and has a great white throne judgment and a sheep and goats judgment at the end of the millennium. See, but that's exactly who the Christ of Revelation is. Exalted, coming with power and great glory, with millions of angels and a sword in his mouth. And anyone who claims to teach about the end times, but leaves out these clear pictures, are compromising the word and compromising the gospel. Why? Because for every one of us, today is the day to prepare for that day whenever it occurs. But if we don't teach the truth about that day, people can't prepare. Because remember the universal biblical principle, only the truth sets free. Application number two, here's the perennial question, and it's one that Dana asked me last week. Why, here's your blank, why will there even be a millennium? What is its purpose? Now, whenever the biblical concept of the millennium is taught, inevitably, a huge question comes up. After all, it makes no sense for God to waste all of this time with a millennial reign of Christ on the earth from the city of Jerusalem on the throne of Israel. Why, after finally returning to the earth and conquering the evil one and overturning the oppressive evil dictatorships of the earth and settling, setting the captives free and becoming the champion of the oppressed and the downtrodden, after, after setting free the orphan, the widow, and the alien, why wouldn't God just end all of it there and melt the universe with a fervent heat and begin eternity with the new heaven and the new earth? Why a millennium? And there are actually many answers to this question, but there are two, I believe, two primary purposes of the millennium. To see the first purpose, let's first turn to a, a famous passage from the most famous passage in, in the Bible. Look at from John 3, 16 and 17. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to judge the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. So, there are far, uh, this is by far and away the best known. But what's interesting is, have you ever paid attention to verses 18 and 19? They go together. The one who believes in him is not judged. The one who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and people, look at this, and people loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. This passage is incredibly revealing. It gives us the background for understanding the first purpose for the millennium. Ready? Purpose number one, write it in, here's your blank. To reveal once and for all that humans aren't just misunderstood or mistreated or misguided, but rather humans are truly sinful. Got that? To reveal why a millennium? To reveal once and for all that humans aren't just misunderstood or mistreated or misguided, but rather humans are truly sinful. Think about it. Secular humanism affirms the inherent goodness of humanity. They say the reason that humans can't become enlightened and good is because of poverty and disease and injustice and evil systems of government. Secularism explains that the reason Johnny does bad things is because of his environment, his upbringing his tough breaks, his lack of education, his economic status, and many other things. Johnny's still good, it's just he does bad things, but it's not because he's bad. See, secularism teaches that someone other than Johnny is responsible for his issues. But look at Revelation 20, verses 7 through 9 again. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, to gather them together for war. Now remember, this is the end of the millennium, to gather them together for war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. So it's all, here it is, Israel. It's kind of like Armageddon on steroids all over again, but the end of the millennium. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Look what the millennium will show. Even when the world has had a perfect king and a perfect government and a perfect economy and perfect justice and no more poverty, no more hunger and almost no disease or death, in the end, when the evil one is released from his prison one last time and when the people who have now seen God himself reign over the earth as the perfect king, When these people are offered the choice, this is mind-boggling, but when these people are offered the choice between God and the evil one, the deceiver, massive numbers of them, it says like the sand of the seashore, massive numbers of them, nation upon nation, myriads upon myriads will choose Satan rather than King Jesus. You ready for the key concept? Here's your blank. The millennium will be the great scam exposer. The millennium will be the great scam exposer. You see, there'll be no more pretense, 
no more scam, that the reason people do bad things is because they've all been dealt a lousy hand. And they're just doing the best that anyone could ever expect of them with the lousy hand they've been dealt. And at the end of the millennium, this fallacy will be completely exposed. And it will finally be impossible to argue against the fact that the reason humans choose evil and like evil and pursue evil and prefer evil is because humans are evil. And this is why when God looked down on the lost human race, he didn't send an economist or a politician or an educator or a psychiatrist or a social worker. When he looked down at our race, he sent a savior, a savior, our only hope. So the first purpose for the millennium is to reveal once and for all that humans aren't just misunderstood or mistreated or misguided or codependent, but rather humans are truly sinful. You see, our problem isn't original misfortune. Our problem is original sin. But there's another purpose for the millennium, and this is a great purpose. You ready? Write it in. Here's your, here's your blank. Purpose number two to affirm the faithfulness of God and to show that he keeps his promises. In Isaiah, we have a remarkable picture of the second coming of Christ, followed by a classic Old Testament rendering of the millennium. Look at this from early in Isaiah chapter 11. Look at this. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. That's, of course, the Messiah, Jesus. But with righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the humble of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He will slay the wicked. Wow, wait a second. This is messianic. Notice, this didn't happen at Christ's first coming. And the reason is, if he would have come in judgment the first time, if he'd have come as the lion the first time instead of as the lamb, everyone would have been lost. So these are prophecies about what Christ will do at his second coming when he judges the earth. But now look what happens after Christ returns. Notice pre-millennial. Christ returns and then look at verse 6. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion, and the fattened steer will be together, and a little boy will lead them. Look at this. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. For classic millennial verbiage. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Christ returns in great glory and in judgment and saves those who love him. And then comes the beautiful millennial reign of Christ, pre-millennial. So look what happened in the past. First, Christ had to come as the lamb slain for our sin. But now that he's provided the way to salvation, his next coming, he'll judge the earth. And then he'll set up a righteous government and wipe out oppression and poverty and human trafficking and disease and every other evil. And he'll establish his reign on King David's throne in Jerusalem. And as promised, Israel will have its Messiah, its eternal king, reigning in the land of Israel. Now notice, 
Isaiah, not knowing really anything about this, was a premillennialist. First Christ comes back, and then the desperate world is made into utopia, pre-millennial. So let me ask two questions as we get ready to close. Is there anything conditional about these promises? Does God say, for instance, if Israel is faithful, and if Israel gets it, and if Israel follows my laws, then I'll come back and reign as the perfect king in Israel and bring in this incredible utopia and world? No. These are all unconditional promises. God does say, it doesn't say any of these conditions. So these promises will come about no matter what anyone does. And the second question, has this ever happened yet? Has the world ever been a utopia since the fall? And has the perfect king ever reigned over Israel and the world from Jerusalem? Not yet. And so the millennium is actually about God's integrity, his faithfulness, and his character. See, if there isn't a future millennium, listen to this now. This is really important. If there isn't a future millennium because it's been promised, if there isn't a future millennium where Christ comes and sets up a righteous government and wipes out oppression and poverty and, and, and all of these other evils, then if that doesn't happen, then God is a liar. If there isn't a day where he comes and reigns in righteousness and justice and where he sets the prisoner free, then God is a liar. The millennial prophecies are unconditional promises. So if there isn't a day when the earth is full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, then God will have broken his promises. So why will there be a millennial reign of Christ? Because God is a God of promise. Now, some of you may be thinking, uh, this is just eschatology, though. Why, why are you hammering on this? How does this really affect me? Millennium, no millennium, whatever. Well, let's stop and think for a moment. How important is this to us? Let me read just a few promises that God has given to us. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's a promise of God. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. It's a promise of God. He who began a good work in you will be faithful, will be faithful, will be faithful to complete it. It's a promise of God. And now, just let this passage from Romans 8 soak in as we read it together in closing. Romans chapter 8. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or trouble or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am some of the greatest words written in all of history anywhere. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So now, having heard these incredible promises from God's word, let me ask us this question one more time. How important is it 
that God keeps his promises, it's everything. 